The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, July 4th, the buying your own bullshit edition. I'm Christina Codarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward, and I am recording from beautiful Musquamacate, Rhode Island, where I am visiting family for our nation's birthday. <laughs> You're such a patriot, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Nicole Perkins writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. And I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. So the news is out. Hannah and Noreen are officially retiring from the waves. Uh, we've had a lot of great emails from listeners about how sad they are, and we are also very sad. Um, but the show must and will go on. Uh, And we're so excited to still have this great diversity of voices here on the waves. June is staying with us, which we are so pleased about. We've also heard from you guys about our segment on the Women's World Cup. I was actually kind of surprised by how many people wrote in saying that the U.S. women's national team was being bad sports by celebrating their victories so enthusiastically against Thailand. Um, One person said that the celebrations had a real Murica fuck yeah vibe to them that was antithetical to the spirit of the World Cup. Another said, it was a Canadian listener, she said, you know, my husband plays recreational hockey. He said that if one team trounces the other and rubs their faces in it, there may be a price to pay afterward in the parking lot. I'll just say that, you know, World Cup soccer is not recreational hockey, but point taken, and thank you to everyone who wrote in on that topic. There's one thing I just want to say about the World Cup feedback we got, because I was a little surprised by it. I find soccer a generally trolly sport. Am I the only one, the flopping, the carrying on, the pretending to have injuries when you don't? I feel like men's soccer often has some really negative attributes about sports man and womanship. And so I just, I'm a little surprised that people felt it um, so strongly. And I'm also curious in light of Megan Rapinoe's comments about not going to the fucking White House, if there is a different way of, of seeing their performance as separate than a kind of pro-USA activity. That's all I'm going to say about that. I think it's also always important to note that like the fact that they won so many goals should never be part of the argument about their sportsmanship because every goal matters in the World Cup. I was one of those people who was like, you know, maybe they shouldn't have celebrated as enthusiastically once they got to, you know, maybe the eighth or ninth goal or whatever. But I do appreciate that they have fully leaned in to the celebrations. <laughs> um, and I'm because, you know, men get away with that kind of stuff all the time. And when men do it, it I find it equally as unsportsmanlike, whatever that may mean. But I like that the women are just sticking to it and they're showing out and I I hope that they continue to do it even though you know for me I you know I don't do sports or whatever but I do like a little cockiness and I think that they are giving as good as anybody else in the sport has given before so I hope that they keep uh keep up the good spirits and keep um boosting themselves if no one else will right on all right now on to this week's show So we're going to talk about the Democratic presidential debates last week and the embarrassment of riches, a.k.a. candidates, that we were blessed to witness on the stage. Then we're going to review Euphoria, a new HBO drama about teenagers having sex, using drugs, and using the internet to find sex and drugs. And finally, we'll discuss Chief an elite women's networking club in New York that's expanding to at least five more U.S. cities in the next year. We're going to talk about its exclusivity and its potential utility in light of all the investment it's getting. And Marsha, why don't you tell us about our Slate Plus segment this week? This weekend, Is It Sexist? We ask if the reaction to Ivanka Trump at the G20 summit is sexist. And here's a sneak peek. I think the response is a natural human response in trying to make light of the fact that we're we all feel like we're going to die soon, and we're just going to try to 
go into that death with a little bit of humor and a smile on our face. So I like it. Um, I like it. No, it's not sexist. I disagree with you a little bit. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you can and should start your free two-week trial by going to slate.com slash thewavesplus. Okay, debates. The Democrats had their first two presidential primary debates last week. Half the candidates debated Wednesday night, the other half on Thursday. There were 20 in all, including six women. Marsha, what were your biggest takeaway from the nights? The clown car that is the Democratic primary um, competition (laughs) is in full swing. And as someone who um, traditionally watches every single debate on both uh, parts of the political spectrum, this was really fascinating because this was unprecedented. There was an appearance of six women um, in the debates over the two days. And I think that there were some real interesting takeaways from it. One is the discussion about what we broadly call women's issues in electoral politics. So the conversations about reproductive justice and abortion access, the questions about race and maternal health, the issues of violence against uh, trans women, particularly trans women of color, uh, questions about childcare. So it really um, was interesting to see the ways that both men and women candidates brought up these issues in an attempt, I think, on the Mm -hmm. part of some Democratic candidates to consolidate that voter base that is so critical, and that's women of color, particularly black women. Um, We also saw just workplace dynamics in front of us in terms of (laughs) who talked too much, who didn't make any good points, um, the ways that the women hopefuls interact acted with the men. There was some, you know, planned zingers to bring back what Mitt Romney talked about in 2012. There were moments in which you saw the ways that women candidates kind of distinguish themselves from the entire field of men, even as they were distinguishing themselves from the other candidates as individuals. So it was, I think, and two excellent nights of political theater. Too bad that this has real implications for people's lives or this would be fun. <laughs> uh, Nicole, what did you think? Oh, boy. Um, so <laughs> when I was younger and my family would take us to, uh, we would go to a buffet with you know <laughs> my family. My mother would get very upset with me because she said that I would see the buffet and get overwhelmed by all the choices and just stick to something very basic like a hamburger and fries. And she's like, you know, you could get a hamburger and fries anywhere. Why, you know, there's all the choices here. What's wrong? And that's how I feel today (laughs) with those debates. I felt overwhelmed by so So many people talking at once. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, No disrespect to anybody who is a Joe Biden fan. (laughs) But I just I just felt just too much going on. Um, And I think partly part of the reason why I felt overwhelmed is that I am cynical now. I feel very jaded about the presidential election. And maybe I've always been that way since being able to vote. But it's really, you know, in the last, I guess, 12 years or so, it's just I've you know, become even more bitter about everything. Um, so when Cory Booker brought up trans women of color, the violence against trans women of color, I was very surprised, number one, and then immediately felt like, mm, is this just a brownie point, talking point? You know, like, is he mm-hmm. does he really have a pl- any kind of like plan in place does he really is he really thinking about the violence against trans people particularly trans women of color or is this just him getting making sure to have that word making sure that he, he mentions trans women in this very public very you know um b- wide stage that he has at that moment so i i just feel very cynical about everything and you know i just i'm concerned about the way that we are still just kind of laughing at everybody because we were laughing at Trump for so long, or and I say we very yeah. generally, very loosely, and that he there he is in the White House. So I'm not to take the fun from it, you know, not to ruin, not to be, you know, a Debbie Downer, but I think people need to really stop and try not to repeat the mistakes that we have made, you know, during this last election. I feel like you were subtweeting Marianne Williams in there a little bit. Would that be accurate? 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> A little bit. I feel like everyone... <laughs> Everyone needs to, like, have that bit of levity because this is a very stressful situation, and I totally understand that, and I I get it, and I know that it's, you know, I think it's fairly easy to pick on her or to, you know, glom on her and let her be the outlet for some of our humor, but I don't want us to lose ourselves in that, and I want us to just, you know, stay focused. So for those of you who don't know who Marianne Williamson is, she's a self-help author who, you know, has never held political office. The debate last week was the first time a lot of people, especially people from a younger generation, had ever seen her speaking. She sort of sounds like a sing-songy Catherine Hepburn. Um, I found out last weekend that one of my friends really loves her, has seen her speak, do a guided meditation. My friend said it left her bawling. I suspect some of our listeners know her and like her. She, you know, has has definitely been around for a while and is popular. And, you know, her message is a little bit, I would say, woo. You know, she sent journalists this press release that was like, instead of a drinking game, do like a yoga de-stressing game when you watch the debates. Every time someone says healthcare, do a plank. Every time somebody says immigration, take a deep cleansing breath. And and some people have actually written into us saying, some of you guys have written into us saying, is it sexist the way people have been sort of laughing her off and writing her off? Uh, and And I think that you know, on some level, she is identifying some of the core issues that are animating Trumpism, fear and hate, um, that it's not just about policy. It's also about these deep seated personal issues that a lot of people have. And, you know, what would attract somebody to somebody like Trump? A lot of times it's it's not because they like his policies. I would laugh and I would, you know, be able to appreciate her, except I'm fucking furious. And I'm so angry that she's even in these debates because she's making a mockery, I think, of this essential democratic process at a moment when the U.S. is leaving children and adults without showers and proper food and medical care and toothpaste in cages, committing human rights violations within our own borders. And here comes this you know, very popular and accomplished self-help author exploiting the political process to sell her books and making fun of people who are actually trying to advance policy solutions to the inequities and injustices in our nation. She literally said, you know, if you think we're going to beat Donald Trump by having a bunch of plans, you've got another (laughs) thing coming. Like, was that supposed to be a jab at Elizabeth Warren and her, because her thing is like, I have a plan? Like, yeah, we need plans. The, the, the business of governance is not a joke and it's not platitudes. You know, the, you actually have to do things as president and, and make policies and or at least try to advance your policies and have, you know, know how government works. Um, she's comparing laws that restrict abortion rights to laws requiring children be vaccinated. So uh, I'm mad that literally any minute in the debate went to her. This is fascinating so, to me. No, I don't think it's sexist. <laughs> no, this is this is really fascinating to me uh, on so many levels because Marianne Williamson, I'm I feel like I'm the only person who's copying to like watching her on Oprah in the early '90s. She was so famous, and then then I think her popularity really? waned. But it seems to me I'm one of the few people who remembers like watching her. Um, on Oprah all the time, like they would clear out the stage and she would stand there kind of like when they used to do with Dr. Phil before it got bananas. And, you know, she was one of the love and light healing people. (laughs) I used to really like her. But all of this is to say that I do think I think that Marianne Williamson and Trump are mirrors of a kind of self-aggrandizing, self-promotional branding that was very emblematic of the times that they kind of uh, rose up to more fame. So in the 80s and 90s, um, him as this kind of faux billionaire tycoon type and her as the self-help healer. Both of those industries that fuel people like that are predicated on a kind of narcissism that um, is about relatability as well as exceptionalism. So there's this weird kind of way that her being this um, candidate who represents this kind of the fame monster coming into politics I think is notable. But with that being said, I think that 
the debates and her entry in the debates and the rules about who can be in the debates really exposes the problems of democracy. Um, I generally like democracy on most days, but I mean, this is it, right? She qualified based on a set of standards that's created by a third party. And here she is, right? And so when you think about people like Julian Castro, who are struggling to kind of make it into the second round, and then you think about... Mm -hmm the wealth that some of the candidates independently had access to, it, it it really just shows the unevenness of a process that's supposed to be open to everyone. But, um, you know, her presence on the debate stage, um, I mean, what can you say? Wow. Yeah. yeah. yeah I agree with Marsha that uh, Marion and Trump are on the opposite sides of the color wheel from each other. Like they seem <laughs> to... You know, it, you can solve your problem with money or you can solve your problem with well, your problems with wellness. Right. And I and I <laughs> wanted to make sure that our our listeners knew that Marianne is actually the person who gave us that quote that people always attribute to Nelson Mandela. The our greatest fear is not that we're inadequate quote that's actually her and not nelson mandela so if you have that wow. cross stitch someplace in your home if you've got a little bookmark <laughs> it's not it's not mandela and what is the end you of the quote been, like it's our greatest fear is that um, we're powerful beyond measure or something like that yes yes our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure it is our light not our darkness that most frightens us so marianne williamson not nelson mandela <laughs> and listen, um, I could I could join the self-help train any day of the week. Like, let me be very clear, um, because I do think that um, I think it is important for people to talk about, you know, kind of like social sickness, the malaise of our time, you know, the emotional instability and the emotional reasons why people make political decisions. I'm not actually bashing some of the kind of emotional and even spiritual groundings of some of her ideology. What I do think is troubling is that even after this incredibly disheartening and terrible years we've had since the 2016 election, the question about whether we trust our neighbors to look out for us as well as themselves in this electoral process is something that I think this conjures up those feelings of 2016. Because I think at the end of the day, the 2016 election and the election of Trump was about a segment of the population being really comfortable with annihilation, not just disruption. So that Trump becomes president because mm. you want an outsider, someone who'll shake things up. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, you want someone who's ill-equipped and who is devious and you know surrounds himself with people with the most nefarious um, intentions to annihilate the whole project. And this is where this becomes really dangerous. And so I think for the candidates, to go back to the women candidates, most of them are probably more prepared and more insightful than their male counterparts, but it kind of doesn't matter. Um, Because the question is, do we live in a nation that really believes that the common good is what motivates political decisions, or again, this kind of fear and um, self-interest that certain candidates can telegraph and really bring voters in? We see that battle of competency in the Harris versus Biden. Um, dust up. I don't. I don't want to call it a beef. Yeah, dust up. Thank you, because Kamala knows what she's talking about, and she's very firm and and um, confident in the way that she approaches these, these subjects. Um, and I remember seeing after you know, um, the debate in which she talks, she brings up the fact that she was one of this, the young children who was bust, um, and that Biden, um, you know, was doing his little spiel about that. And she was like, well, I was one of those people. Someone on Twitter was like, is Harris being too aggressive? And of course that person got ratioed, Mm. which means that they were, um, (laughs) which means that they got a lot of responses versus retweets for those who are unfamiliar with Twitter world language. Um, and because, why should the woman be considered aggressive because she was confident in herself and she was, you know, trying to get her uh, voice heard in, in a particular way? So there's that kind of is a sexist moment. Right. And then there's also kind of, you know, there's some coded stuff that happens when you have a woman of color being accused of being aggressive. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things. So I just wanted to point that out so to get to 
uh, one of the juicier moments of the debates, the Harris <laughs> versus Biden situation. Yeah. And it was, I mean, really Biden's debate to lose or his race to lose, I think. And damn, is he losing? I mean, he, I don't think it's ageist to note that he would be the oldest president we've ever had um, beating Trump. Uh, and he really was was showing how much he's changed since his younger years, I think, in the debate. He didn't seem like he was firing in all cylinders. When his time ran out, he just sort of stopped. It was like, I don't know, it doesn't seem like he wants it in the same way that everyone else does, which is generally the sense I get from his whole candidacy that, you know, this is just sort of what he knows how to do, like run for things. It's what's expected of him. And he's running because he can and because he thinks possibly he can win. And it's, you know, he doesn't have any kind of like vision or fire for remaking the country for the better in any particular way. He's just kind of coasting. And it really didn't work well for him. I mean, uh, I know it's still early, um, but there have been a couple polls since the debate showing that spectators of the debate who used to consider Biden extremely electable are now less likely to believe that. And the women are all ascending and almost all of the white men are uh, falling in their, you know, favorability and electability numbers. So so Joe Biden has run for president when I was nine years old, 29, and now 39 years old. And it's interesting <laughs> to note that at each and every moment in which he ran for president, I kind of remembered he's not that good at it. And I think that um, there's this strange thing about inevitability that is somewhat manufactured by media that can be misrepresented by polling data, depending on the types of questions you ask. But Joe Biden is not very good at running for president. And Obama, I think, did him a solid by letting him become vice president and show some strength in that area. He's not that good at it. And all of that is to say that confrontation between Biden and Harris, the thing that I noted was, I don't know how many um, confrontations like that between men and women politicians that we really see. Um, we had the debates with you know Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump as as kind of our reference point. But I think as this cycle continues, it'll be really interesting to see how women's tones are interpreted like aggressive or backed down or stepped up to or yelled at. That's another classic sexist one. Women are always yelling when they're using a perfectly normal tone of voice. Um, mm -hmm. But all of that is to say that his lack of preparedness is, I think, sometimes a reflection of um, buying your own bullshit that you know you're the you're the candidate to beat, and this is a very long process. So I think um, it'll be interesting to see it, how Harris pivots from this moment because I think her campaign was super prepared for it. You know they had a picture of her as a little girl, it was very adorable, like ready and you know willing to fire. And I think that um, you know she's someone who also. I think, like Cory Booker, was considered the future of the party, wasn't very charismatic going out the gates. But the thing about her is she learns from her past mistakes. I don't think Cory Booker ever gets better. Um, so it'll be really <laughs> interesting to see um, how she progresses. But um, I want to go back to the trolling about plan, the trolling Elizabeth Warren for being smart. I, I think that I really enjoyed the number of people on Twitter who are Warren fans who really play up like she's the person in the class who helps you with her homework. And, you know, she's the professor who never goes overtime during her lectures. The idea of being professorial and a woman, I'm really curious, not only because I'm a woman professor, but I'm curious about how this also plays into the future debates when people talk about Elizabeth Warren's tone against candidates who are not as either well prepared or well educated as her. I think that there's a, a gendered aspect to this that could potentially backfire for her. And I don't think it's anything she's doing wrong, but it's it's interesting what some people are saying or complimenting her on, you know, the fact that she has so many plans, she always raises her hand, she's the one who, like, you know, it isn't necessarily trying to prove everyone wrong, but just happens to always be right. It kind of reminds me of the way people would, like, roll their eyes at, like, the, the smart little girls um, in class, which, like, I think probably a lot of us were, like, the girls in class who, like, <laughs> their hands popped up as soon as the teacher opened their mouth. 
Um, what are you suggesting, Christina? <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to name names, but like Marsha. Yeah, like what some people consider a good thing, I think a lot of people will, especially when you throw gendered preconceptions into there, consider a bad thing. But I am heartened by these early poll numbers. I know you just said not to trust polls, Marsha, but um, <laughs> that show Warren, you know, getting her due, her and Harris gaining on Biden. You know, there's this was the first time they really got to get on the stage and interact with each other. And there's nothing like a debate to sort of lay bare the the mediocre white man who's been coasting. And I'm talking about Beto O'Rourke, too, um, who saw one of the biggest drops in support since the debate where you kind of realize, like, who has the substance to back up their charisma and backstory and, and buzz. Yeah, I'm actually really grateful that Beto O'Rourke's popularity is falling. And I, I'm not trying to, you know, celebrate a failure or anything. But I think what the debates showed is the way that people of color and sometimes women as well have to work twice as hard. That old um, saying about you have to work twice as hard to get half as much. And I think that that was very clear in those debates in the way that Harris responded in the way that Warren responded. And I just, I hope that people see that when we call out these mediocre white men, it's not just us being angry, vile, vicious, anti-man feminists or anything like that, which are, you know, I've definitely been accused of being that, but it's a very real phenomenon that happens in just any industry. And we're seeing that now as we have all of these men who are just like, well, I guess I'll run. I have the money and I have enough of, you know, I've I've checked off the box for the criteria. So let me just put my name in the ring and see what happens. So I I'm I'm just really ready for the candidates to be whittled down and someone to Mm -hmm. kind of, um, you know, kick a rock down the road and say, okay, I guess I got to pull myself out of this race and, and maybe I could do better. And, you know, in my small town, <laughs> that's what I'm waiting for. Roll their little hoop down the dirt road and get on their merry way. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. I think that's all the time we have for the debates. I'm so excited for the next debates uh, later this month. And hopefully we'll have some good dust ups to discuss then. Listeners, if you have thoughts, if you're a Marianne Williamson stan, Email us at thewaves at slate.com. Euphoria. It's a new HBO series that premiered last month. There are three episodes out so far. Nicole, tell us about the show. (sighs) Oh, boy. Okay. So, yeah, Euphoria is on HBO. It's based on an Israeli show of the same name um, created by Ron Lesham and Daphne Levin. The HBO show was created by Sam Levinson, and it you know he's using a lot of his own troubles with addiction and drug use as the foundation for the show the show stars zendaya as rue bennett a 17 year old who is struggling with addiction there's also hunter schaefer who stars as jules vaughn a new girl in town and um, you also have Storm Reed, who was in A Wrinkle in Time, as um, Rue's sister Gia. And there are several other people. Yeah, so it takes place in a suburban high school. And it is a show that deals with the discovery of adolescence. And in that discovery, there are drugs, alcohol, sex, porn, technology, social media, all of the modern vices that we can have, we are seeing through the eyes of these teenagers. And, you know, honestly, I could not make it past the first episode. It was very intense for me. It was, yeah, it was a little triggering for me. I don't typically like shows or films that deal with drug addiction. And obviously, that's the whole, (laughs) the the major premise of the show. And I, I knew that going in, but I was like, oh, it can't be that bad. You know, it's just some kids drinking and smoking and maybe snorting this and that. And yes, there is that, but it is so much more. It is, it's a very bleak series for me. And I have, I have trouble with it just because of family history with addictions and addiction and things like that. And so seeing 
these young people deal with it is just, I don't know, it's just a very painful thing for me. It's a beautiful show. I love the editing. I love the cinematography. I love the direction of it. But it is too intense for me. I'm sorry. Bleak is a really good word for the show. Uh, Marsha, what did you think? So I don't know how I feel about it. Um, I think that some of the acting is really good. I appreciate the ways that addiction is portrayed in terms of, I think that Zendaya does an excellent job of portraying what it is like to be in the orbit of an addict as well as an addict's, you know, highs and lows and the manipulative behavior. There's one scene, I think in episode two, where she is trying to get drugs from a drug dealer. And the ways that she tries to manipulate him, I think, are pitch perfect. And so I think the writing about addiction is excellent. But in terms of the aesthetic, I don't like watching television that makes me feel like I'm having a panic attack. And so sometimes I think <laughs> that, it, do you know what I mean? That feeling like when I'm in, this is how I get when I go hiking, when I when I get too high, high up, like it's that pure panic. Um, and I feel like that's the aesthetic tone. But I get it because I think in many ways, whether you're in the throes of an addiction or you're simply a teenager, that's what life can feel like. So I think it it rings true to form. It's a little hard to watch. The other thing I will say about it, though, that troubles me, it's one of these um, examples of a show that's supposed to be about a certain generation and their angst and their tensions. And on one hand, it's pretty rebellious in terms of the fact that it shows a lot of nudity, which, we'll, which I'll return to in a second. It's very frank about drug use. It's different in terms it has a, a lead who's a person of color. There is an actual trans woman playing a trans woman on a television show, which is a big deal. So there's some things about it that I think are really important, but it kind of falls into a few conservative tropes that I think if you watch it with a critical eye are a little unsettling. They make this determination, I think, early in the show about antidepressants and psychotropic medication that I'm really uncomfortable with. I think they're supposed to show that there's like this connective tissue with Rue needing psychiatric medicine and then her dad needing painkillers when he is sick and then her becoming an addict that these unnuanced views of medication I think can be really harmful. And also young women and their sexuality, there's some of it that it it's a little complicated because on one hand they really do show sexuality as sometimes burdensome and sometimes really terrible and there are very few moments that I think they show young women actually enjoying sex or seeing it as a pleasurable mm-hmm. experience that makes me I understand what they're trying to do but I think that by not complicating these portrayals they kind of fall into some of the standard tropes of young people are on their phones too much They don't take sex seriously or they just do it to fit in and all medication is bad. Yeah, I found myself waffling between like, is this a really accurate portrayal of what sex can be like for a teenager? Because as a former teenage girl, I did feel like a lot of the ways people approached sex, especially when like you don't know what feels good for you and probably the young men you're having sex with don't care like the the idea that like sex is something you kind of want to do to fit in you desperately want to do it but then kind of once you do it it could also ruin your life you know when there's a lot of like sort of revenge porn and passing around nudes that's a major theme in the show so I'm like okay is it like accurate in that way or is it a you know a morality play where all of these kids who are behaving badly are going to get their comeuppance in some particularly gruesome way. I don't love the gratuitous nudity, especially because, you know, these are teen characters. They're being played by actors and actresses in their early 20s for the most part. But I mean, there are so many breasts, even when you don't really need to see breasts. I was reading about how they all of the actresses kind of needed to decide 
when they were signing up for the show or, you know, accepting roles, what parts of their bodies that they would show. And one actress was like, well, you can shoot my breasts, but only in a scene where I'm casually hanging out with my friends, not during a sex scene. I'm like, was the showrunner so intent on getting her breasts in the show that he was like, cool, yep, yeah, have have those breasts in that random scene, then that's fine. Um, like, you, there's also a ton of dicks. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Wait a second. You know what's um, funny, Christina? I don't remember seeing any breasts on the show, just penises for days. Is this some weird Freudian oh, thing? You must have breast blindness no. or something. Yeah, they were I they were all in the Wait, first episode that I saw there? in the pilot. There were definitely a lot yeah. Oh, um, okay. There were a lot of breasts. Oh, I guess and that's, that's another thing that now made, I'm embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, yeah. I'm no, 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 no. Is it no. sexist that I <laughs> didn't were... notice the breasts on the show? <laughs> you only noticed no, the phalluses. <laughs> No, they were there, and I, that's also a problem that I have with the show. I do know that these actors are of age, and they're over 18, but because we are looking at them as teenagers, I'm very uncomfortable watching teenagers in sexual situations, and I am no longer a teenager. You know what I mean? Same. I had the same me... feeling. I wish that this was a college show, because I didn't like the fact that they were yeah. high schoolers. Yeah, and I feel like there, there may be like a little element of like somebody out there getting off on this in ways that they should not be getting yes. off on this. Yeah. Um, I That's what I kept wondering. Like, okay, so is this supposed to be, you know, one of these cultural products made to make parents freak out about what their kids are absolutely doing? Like, um, I'm thinking of the movie Kids or 13. Like, there are pills with names you've never heard of that a literal child with a face tattoo is selling. There are teens getting picked up by old men on Grinder with the username Dominant Daddy. So, like, it could be that kind of parent-terrifying show. But, like, is the audience supposed to be old men who want to meet a teenager in a CD motel? It seems like a little bit of... It could be like a fucked up wish fulfillment thing on that front. Again, I think this is this entire show. Is this show trying to be instructive and helpful? Or is this show trying to titillate and and shock, but to no political or social end? And I think that does matter. I think that's all the time we have for Euphoria. Listeners, if you've seen a show, let us know what you think. You can email us at thewaves@slate.com. Let us know if you think that this is uh, what what teens are really doing these days. All right, Chief. There's a private club for women in New York City called Chief. That's as in Chief Executive. It opened in January. There are 800 members and 5,000 women on the wait list. To get in, you have to be at least a vice president at your company. This isn't for everyday women. The heads of chief will have to decide if you're a good fit for the group. You'll be selected for the privilege of paying either $5,400 or $7,800 for membership, depending on your experience level. You'll get access to a clubhouse. You'll get to see celebrity speakers like Whoopi Goldberg. And most desirably for the members of this group, you'll get invited to join a group of eight to 12 other members who meet every month or two with an executive coach. Last week, Chief announced a $22 million investment round and plans to open new chapters in L.A., Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Chicago, and Boston by the end of next year. The former CEO of American Express, a man, is joining the board and co-leading the investment round. The company is growing, and it joins The Wing, the fast-growing women's co-working space and social club, which is open in several U.S. cities in a new class of women's spaces that are attracting a lot of outside investment. My reaction to something like this, this, you know, a private club with a barrier to entry that is set at vice president, is that I'm not sure we need more spaces for people in power to consolidate power. The, the co-founders of Chief had talked about, you know, the, really the only spaces that we were able to connect with women on our level were like the green room in green rooms, you know, so like on the conference circuit or like, I guess, in backstage of like a TV show that you're going to speak at or like at a, a TED talk or something like that. Um, and I, I don't know that we need more 
places for women on that level to talk to other women on that level. Then again, I'm not a woman on that level. I'm a mere staff writer, <laughs> no vice president. Um, but it it seems like if you know if the goal is greater equity for women, which the co-founders of this group say, you know, they're constantly citing statistics about how few women are at the top levels of corporations and on corporate boards, that talking to women who are already sort of at that level is maybe missing the point. But, you know, again, to, to just push back on myself a little bit, maybe I don't quite understand what it feels like to be in that world where literally everyone around you is a man and you keep seeing men getting promoted over you and you know men are just constantly getting advantages because of the other male friends they have what do you guys think about groups like this and and chief in particular i i have no um good feelings about it because it just seems like another place for rich white women to gather and be rich and white together and i feel like they get a lot of spaces like that already um you know, we saw that three, there are three women of color who run Fortune 500 companies. So I'm wondering, you know, about the lack of intersectionality here. You know, they want to close the achievement gap and the pay gap. And then I wonder what are they doing to close the race and ethnicity gap in these environments? What are they doing to help close the gap? And I think it's, um, it's just another example where, Excluded people are, um, you know, asked to participate in inclusion um, and to solve inclusion matters instead of getting the people who are already there um, to give a helping hand. So I I am not really wild about this. I don't see how it could be of a benefit. But again, like you said, I am not a part of that target audience. I am nowhere near being able to afford anything like a $5,500 membership fee, let alone $7,800 annual uh, membership fee. And not only is the membership fee expensive, but the companies are footing the membership fee for a lot of these people. They're considered a part of their like conference and travel fees. So this is not even coming out of their own pockets. I don't know. It's just a very special privilege to be a part of Chief, and I don't understand why it needs to be celebrated. Yeah, I do wonder how many women of color are members of this group. I I know that The Wing, for instance, is... I, I've been surprised when I've seen photos from their events. And when I went to the opening in D.C., it did seem incredibly racially diverse. And I've heard from some people who are members that it's actually one of the most diverse spaces that they've ever been in. But that's, you know, a fraction of the cost of, of something like this. And it doesn't have any sort of you know, threshold that you have to achieve in your career before you're even allowed in the door. Marsha, what do you think? So I, I think that these types of clubs can be very helpful and generative because I understand the idea that women in these positions are so isolated from other women in these positions because there's so few women in these positions. I understand the need for gathering. The one thing I will say is that I think a lot of these women already have informal networks that they use in order to, you know, determine their next steps, you know, deal with tensions in the office, try to recruit and find talent. And so I think that this formalizes maybe some informal work and provides more resources for women who are already within this this kind of high-powered network. I don't on it on its face I don't have like a serious objection to it, but I want to question what then happens when people with a lot of power spend time with each other? Do they think to themselves, huh, we have really consolidated a lot of power. What are ways that we can share it with others who are powerless? Or is it merely an opportunity for people to celebrate the fact that they were able to, you know, get something? And so I don't have very strong feelings against it, but I do think that it points to the fact that despite incredible gains in women's education, as well as women's entry into fields where they were previously, you know, absent, that lack of representation is still a problem. And then when you add the factor of race, it becomes um, evident that we've made such little progress in 
diversifying the upper ranks of business as well as other fields. I do think it's also interesting that Ken Chenault is part of this. He was the former CEO of American Express, and he was a strong supporter of Augusta National Golf Club in Georgia, opening up their doors to women. He was actually, I think, one of the first members to do that. And he was among the first group of black members of this private golf club. So I think from his vantage point, he has this real sensibility about opening doors. I think the problem is that these doors are already like teeny tiny Alice in Wonderland doors that very (laughs) few people can fit through. So, you know, I'll just I'll leave it at that. But I do. It's funny. I really do like the wing. I'm not a member, but I've visited friends there and I've gone to events there. And it's so aesthetically amazing that I like to go just to look at the stuff. It's so beautiful. (laughs) But I know that, you know, people criticize the wing about kind of like what it's about. I think the wing is interesting because it also is reflective of the ways that people work. It's also a co-working space. It's because people Mm -hmm. are not in brick and mortar offices because they have to telecommute because of family issues or because of cost of living issues. And so it's also reflective of some of the problems, I think, of the modern workplace that people need to pay a monthly fee to have somewhere to work. And they've <laughs> seized on that, right? And they've seized on that and they've made it really pleasant and they've added networking and programming. And I think they have a really beautiful model. But it's kind of interesting to think about the problem that it's solving and how it leaves the workplace off the hook for accommodating workers in ways that can flow with the life that they have. The wing comparison is interesting to me because unlike the wing, Chief is not as heavily branding itself as a feminist endeavor. So the wing is like, you know, has pictures of Shirley Chisholm and Hillary Clinton all over the place, at least in the DC franchise. And, you know, they're having like workshops about like gender fluidity and and it's very like a more social, like less, it, it is a place to meet other women and make connections and I guess do deals and stuff. But my instinct was to sort of assume that the the sort of empowerment feminism and whatever was a framework or marketing angle for chief. And like I said, they do talk a fair amount about the gender gap at corporations and blah, blah, blah. But it's really about how individual women can get theirs. And, you know, there are all these men in the way of these women achieving their own personal career and financial goals. And the idea is that other women are going to help those women navigate around or through those men. So, you know, maybe we've arrived at an era where women who want power don't have to sort of paper over their ambition with goodwill or like feminist benevolence and Ruth Bader Ginsburg wallpaper and and social imperatives for gender justice. And they can just say like, well, I'm going to spend $6,000 on a club that will help me get on the board of Walmart or whatever. And And the other interesting thing is that the idea that this is based on is that there's specific expertise that women can offer each other that men can't or won't. So I imagine that part of that is specifically gender-based, how to be a woman in X industry. But I also think part of it is probably just general career advice that, you know, women, that men aren't giving women. You know, we've talked on this show about how the idea that, you know, post Me Too, men are scared to mentor women, or that, you know, men are uncomfortable being alone with women in spaces or, you know, possibly women are uncomfortable being alone with men in spaces. So this is creating a little bit of a workaround that will allow women to still get kind of mentorship that, you know, it's not forthcoming from their male centric workplaces. There's something a little weird about this idea, though. It doesn't, there's something about it that doesn't ring true to me because the fee seems very low for the echelon of women that they're supposed to cater to. If this is supposed to replicate maybe some of the networking that men have done traditionally in country clubs, where the initiation fees are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars and the monthly member, you know, the annual membership fees are several thousand dollars, the entry point for this seems really low. And so I'm curious if the model that they're establishing is to say, this is for women who are at the very top of their game, we're going to price it in a place where women who are 
a mid to upper career could probably swing the payments and then open it up as a kind of learning annex or some type of lean in circle that's monetized because the price seems very low for the types of people that it's supposed to attract. And I know that there are other clubs that are popping up. Like in Brooklyn, there is a club that's coming called Ethel's Club that is supposed to be um, the first private membership club and workspace designed for people of color. And full disclosure, I did contribute to its fundraiser. So there are these workspaces that are starting to pop up more often. And I guess... So are you going to join Ethel's Club? I don't know. It depends on where it is um, in Brooklyn, mm. because I, I've been to the wing. I've enjoyed my experiences at I've been to, I think, three different locations of the wing here oh, wow. um, in New York. I am not a fan of Millennial Pink and the over <laughs> fem- feminize- feminization of it. Um, I th- I resent the idea that, oh, if it's for women, we have to have pink in there somewhere. I, I That's just a and personal just thing. And not pink in there somewhere. Ref- the entire thing is pink. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is, it is, <laughs> it's pretty and it's beautiful. And, um, you know, the um, aesthetic choices are fine. Um, but I'm just like, I don't know. I don't like aggressive femme things like that. So to see the chief talking about the, that it, that its space is a kind of a dark green and you know um, with wood and they serve scotch. I'm like, okay, oh I under, I appreciate that, but you also don't have to overcorrect in that way to make it <laughs> yeah. feel like yeah, like oh, I just wanted exactly what the men have had. Yeah, yeah. there needs to be some kind of compromise. I, I don't and I don't know what it would be because I am not an interior designer, but I just I think that you know. It, there needs to be more uh, diversity in what womanhood looks like, a woman aesthetic looks like, I guess. I want to raise one final note of skepticism about these two clubs that we've been talking about, and that is in regard to the investment money that they are both raking in by the dozens of millions of dollars. Um, So people clearly believe that there is money in this industry of women congregating with women. And when you think about it, there was no one really explicitly profiting off of the proverbial old boys club, except maybe literal clubs, country clubs, and you know, the old boys, of course, themselves were making deals and greasing palms and blah, blah, blah. But now the economy has evolved such that investors are probably going to make a ton of money off of these new old girls clubs or new girls clubs. And I wonder who's investing in them. And I wonder the gender breakdown of the investors, because I know most people involved in uh, traditional, you know, investment rounds are men. I mean, like, the vast majority of people investing in anything are men. So it's very possible, if not extremely probable, that men are going to be the ones making bank off of these women's empowerment clubs. And I'm very interested to see how that plays out. It bothers the Mm. shit out of me, in case you couldn't tell. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's it for Chief. Listeners, let us know if you're a member. VP or above only, please. Our email address is thewaves at slate.com. Okay, recommendations. Who has something good for us? I'll start. Historian and writer Jill Lepore published in The New Yorker this week an essay called The Lingering of Loss about her friend who died and her friend left behind her laptop. And 20 years after her friend's death, Jill Lepore looks through the laptop and the files and recounts this incredible friendship that I think so many people can relate to, especially those who may have had the experience of losing a friend early in life. And her friend died the day that she gave birth to her first child. And so she goes through what has happened to her over the years and her friend's legacy. And so I highly recommend this beautiful and poignant read, The Lingering of Loss by Jill Lepore in The New Yorker. I've seen a bunch of people recommending that. I need to read that. Oh, my God. It's all (laughs) crying all the time. Nicole, what do you have? Okay. Um, So I am going to recommend deleting all of your tweets. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> so good. Uh, something I don't know if I'll be able to bring myself to do it, but convince me. Okay. I actually just did it yesterday. Um, and it was very, you know, it, wow. it took me a long time to get to the point where I was like, let me go ahead and do this. But I've been thinking about I, I've been thinking about it for a solid year. Um, and I've been on Twitter on that particular account uh, since I think 2010. And so I had a lot of tweets and I am a prolific tweeter. I live tweet TV shows. I give my thoughts on movies. I tell ridiculous stories. So I tweet a lot. You know, as I get a little bit more in the public eye, I am concerned about my tweets being dredged up and misconstrued. Um, I have pretty good home training. I have pretty good sense. So I don't tweet anything that I think is very controversial beyond, you know, I dislike Brad Pitt or something like that. But I have been noticing more and more as people, as their stars rise and they become more famous, people then take it upon themselves to dig through their tweets and find things and say, well, can you explain this tweet that you wrote 10 years ago when you were 13? How did you, why did you say this thing? You know, that kind of stuff. And again, although I don't have anything, you know, that was filled with bigotry or any slurs or anything terrible like that, the way some people do, I just felt very concerned. Well, now we'll never know. Uh, you right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just felt very concerned that maybe a sarcastic tweet or something where someone doesn't really get my humor or um, purposely um, misreads my humor will be taken out of context. So I will just remove the context completely and remove everything and just go forward. And I feel, I don't know, I feel like uh, I've just done a big chop, which is when you're growing out your hair for a particular style and you just cut it all off, right? You chop off all of your hair. So that's how I feel. I feel very bald. I feel naked with all of the tweets. I'm sure there's going to be something that I'll need to, um, I'll need for a reference at some point because with the other podcast, Thirst Aid Kit, we would go through, uh, my co-host and I, Bim and I would go through our tweets to point out we've been talking about this person for a very long time or to highlight a humorous tweet or something so I mean I did download my archive so I have that but um but I you know as naked and bald as I feel I also feel very clean and refreshed and I can just move on and not worry about anything so I do think that you should um if you don't want to delete all your tweets I think it's important that people search their tweets for anything that may be misconstrued or anything that, you know, they may have tweeted when they weren't as quote unquote woke as they are now. So give yourself permission to remove past mistakes, I guess. I am recommending the novel Adele by Leila Slimani. Uh, it's a novel. It was the author's first novel. It was originally published in 2015 in French. Uh, but was translated into English by Sam Taylor, released earlier this year. And, oh my God, I I just totally tore through this book. It's about a 35-year-old woman who is living a comfortable life. She's got a doctor husband, a son. They live in Paris. Uh, she's a newspaper reporter, but doesn't really care about her job. She thinks she shouldn't have to work, kind of wants to live a life of luxury without the trappings of work and effort and obligation. She's also addicted to sex and finds herself compulsively seeking out affairs and one night stands or one day stands um, with just repulsive people. Sex that, you know, isn't bringing her any pleasure, just excitement or the opposite of boredom and the feeling of desirability and pain and submission and the expansiveness of having multiple lives. And, oh my God, it's so compelling. Just really written with extreme pointed language. And I have to give the translator, Sam Taylor, credit for that too. Uh, but Leila Slamani is an incredible storyteller and this character became incredibly real to me. And in that way, it was a little bit of a, 
um, surprising and enlightening window into what sex addiction might be like. You know, not always, or not always just, but like a pursuit of excitement and not just sexual release. And it's very suspenseful. And um, I'm kind of upset that I already read it because I'm at the beach for the rest of this week. And it would have been a great beach read, but it was also a great at-home read. It's called Adele. That's our show for today. Thank you to our production assistant, Alex Barish, and our producer, Danielle Hewitt. For Marsha Chatlin and Nicole Perkins, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening.